Hello there, Earthlings, and welcome back to the Silver Screen Podcast. Uh, I am your usual host, Mike. Uh, <laughs> we'll behave. Uh, and we are uh, looking to this week our competition because that's right uh, this particular week as you're listening this very day in fact is the 60th anniversary of Doctor Who uh, the anniversary of the day at first uh, it was first broadcast in actual fact if you're listening to this on uh, its live release you'll be able to listen and then pretty much cross straight over to BBC4 I believe and watch a colorization of the Daleks serial that the film we're talking about today is based on so consider that a bit of fantastic uh, synergy with the BBC. We are not sponsored. I just like Doctor Who. So hopefully you enjoy it too. Uh, I am joined as usual anyway by our usual co-host, DK. Hello, I am not Roberta Telvey. I should really have said Dr. K or Dr. DK or something. But, and uh, we are joined by uh, our good friend from our fantastically, stupendously well, uh, well-viewed well Terminator review and yeah. our other big Doctor Who fan, Will. Welcome back, Will Templar. Oh, no worries. It's just another soft centre. <laughs> I'm glad you got it. That is DK's uh, little name on the chat is Soft Centers, and I thought it was you when he first entered because I was like, only Will would make that kind of a silly joke. Yeah, but no, it wasn't. <laughs> so, if you haven't guessed by now, then we are going to be looking at the 1965 film Doctor Who and the Daleks, uh, an adaptation of the very first Dalek serial from Doctor Who, because we are ostensibly a film podcast, so we're looking at the the first big screen movie. Obviously, it's you know a British movie, uh, still based on the series, but with a few changes that I'm sure we will get into. Uh, and yeah, this is the one that stars Peter Cushing as Doctor Who. No Daleks, Doctor Who. That's one of the changes. Who gave this man his sample back? For the love of God, I thought I was <laughs> that that literally is all I've got. I just really wanted to do. That. So, uh, yeah, we're going to just sort of break down and discuss Doctor Who and the Daleks. Uh, myself and DK have seen this many a time before. Will saw it for the first time, I think, a few hours before recording, so yeah. he'll have a much fresher opinion. And but he's younger and hipper than us anyway. Uh, but you know, if you're whoa, whoa, uh, whoa, new whoa, whoa, here, whoa. He's younger. Let's leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> well there we go if you're new here you may not know this if you're a regular viewer you will that we always start with a little uh, behind the scenes section little bits of information about the film uh, so uh, I have tasked TK with doing that because I know he's a big fan of this movie and of Amicus the company that made it so DK it's over to you for the BTS uh, yes I'll start with that saying thank you for the music upcoming Peter Cushing was offered the role of the Doctor for this movie, as he was known to international audiences for his uh, his Hammer film work. William Hartnell, who played the Doctor, the original you might say, in the TV series, was reportedly very disappointed to be replaced by Cushing for the production. Ironically, Cushing was offered the role of the Doctor in the TV series on three separate occasions, but declined. He allegedly later regretted that decision. Now, as an incentive to Roberta Tovey, who was 11 at the time of filming, the director Gordon Fleming reportedly paid her a shilling, equivalent to around 5p for, for those of us who are not in an old folks home, every time she did a scene in one take. She apparently made so much money, Fleming was reluctant to offer her the same deal for the sequel. 
And for the modern day comparison, a shilling from 1965 had the buying power of one pound now or about $1.30. So inflation, eh? Now, the Daleks, voiced by actor David Graham, who is best known among us nerd types for being the voice of Parker in Jerry Anderson's Thunderbirds. And Brains. Brains is just nobody compared to Parker, dude. It's like Parker's very <laughs> dark. This is arguably the first movie appearance of a lava lamp. They were invented in the UK in 1963 and deemed futuristic enough to be used in the Dalek headquarters. So when you next see Austin Powers, realise that the Daleks are responsible for so, so many atrocities. Peter Cushing was apparently a keen amateur florist and himself contributed the name Lilium Philadelphicum for the flower Susan discovers growing on Scaro. And at the time, although the backgrounds of the supporting cast were changed to make them more appealing to movie-going audiences, the Doctor, or Doctor Who in this context, was pretty much synchronous with the character seen in the TV series. That he was human, implied to have invented the TARDIS, and even referred to as Doctor Who. The revelations in the show that he was a time-travelling alien came later, explaining the inconsistency. It was planned to show one of the denizens of the Swamp of Mutations, but the prop constructed for the sequence was deemed too unconvincing to be used. In contrast, however, the, writh the writhing creature designed to be glimpsed inside a Dalek casing was judged too unsettling for the family audience the film was aimed at. This wasn't the only thing toned down either. Initially, the Daleks were going to shoot fire and the characters in the movie were going to more frequently scream. But after the script was sent to the BBFC, concerns were raised that these elements would be too frightening and not be suitable for a child-friendly movie, resulting in the, uh, the fire from the weapons being replaced by CO2 fire extinguishers. Now, Terry Nation's writing credit on the film resulted in many reference books over the years erroneously listing him as a creator of the original television series. So uh, I'm sure he made a bit of pocket out of that. Speaking of which, this is the first of two Amicus Peter Cushing movies, the other being Dalek Invasion of Earth 2150 AD. There were plans for a third film, but those plans were abandoned after the underperformance of the 2150 AD sequel. Now, for years, it was speculated that a third film would have been based on the original series serial, The Chase. However, papers uncovered by the sons of producer Milton Subotsky suggest a different take. While there was nothing concrete regarding an antagonist, it has been suggested that another creature could have been used in the third movie, Cybermen, Ice Warriors. It is possible that the third outing could have featured the Daleks once again. But the feeling was, especially after the poor performance of the second movie, that the Daleks were beginning to be seen as a little tired. So, if I, uh, if I may put in here, I did hear something, and I'm not sure how true it is, but I did hear something that they were going to base it on the chase, but it was going to be marketed as Daleks versus Mechanoids. And that would be the kind of thing that they're going, they were going with uh, to kind of lure people in was, oh, look, not just the Daleks. Again, it could be wrong. But I just wanted to throw that out there. <laughs> yeah, as I said, it was, it's been speculated for some time. Here's what could have been featured. Well, the provisional title for the third film, and make of this what you will, was Doctor Who's Greatest Adventure and would have repurposed an old horror movie script whose original title was Night of the Crabs. So, yeah. I don't know what you're going to make Oh, of the jokes just write themselves sometimes, yeah. don't they? Yeah, and even more intriguing, the notes for the script would have seen the Doctor coming face-to-face -face with 
himself. According to reports, it would have seen both it would have seen actually two doctors, a younger and an older version, which is interesting as it would have preempted 1973's Three Doctors by several years. I'm not sure how they would explain that away, but uh, it's movies, so there you go. There were also plans during the late 60s for a radio serial continuing the adventures of Cushing's Doctor, with Cushing voicing the character. A pilot was recorded, Journey Into Time, with he and his granddaughter travelling to the time of the American Revolution. It was written by future TV show writer Malcolm Holt, and a further 52 episodes were planned. Sadly, the idea never took off, and the recording of the pilot was unfortunately lost. However, this is not the last we would see of the Cushing incarnation of the Doctor. For those who couldn't get enough of this iteration of the character, if you can find it, the BBC Books 2000 anthology Short Trips and Sidesteps featured the story The House on Old Dark Moor by Justin Richards, which would continue the adventures of this Doctor. In the years since, Obverse Books have published a series of unofficial books for charity, featuring further adventures of this version of the Doctor taking over from the radio serial that never aired. The, uh, the Stephen Moffat 2018 novelisation of The Day of the Doctor also features a reference to the movies. So despite there being only two movies initially, Cushing's Doctor resonated enough with fans who have now become creators that he still continues on in one form or another to this day. And back to you, fella. Nice. Yeah, it's, I'm pleased you mentioned that about the Stephen Moffat thing because I have the novelisation of uh, Day of the Doctor that he wrote. And uh, it comes and actually stems from an interview that I saw with him where he did say he tried to work the movies into the actual Day of the Doctor episode. Um, he was going to have movie posters in the Black Archive that the Doctor visits in Unit and have it implied that Peter Cushing was a real actor who was acting out, you know, the things that the Doctor had lived and that explained the differences. So they existed as movies in universe, but unfortunately, different companies, etc., they weren't allowed the rights to do that. So corrected that when he came to to write the book and i kind of i personally like to believe that yeah if he was going to do that let's just assume that <laughs> why not so, yeah, yeah from, from what yeah. i read both the 10th and 11th doctors were fans of and friends with cushing yes yeah. Unit began investigating it because he kept releasing movies even after he was dead so <laughs> yeah. i'm going to yeah. say that point was probably overtaken by disney most likely, yeah. It's strange that they were rumoured for a time to have a, a movie based on the chase as well, since that briefly turns into a Hammer horror film out of nowhere. <laughs> well, was it a Hammer horror film or was it Carry On Screaming? <laughs> well, it was kind of Abbott and Costello me Frankenstein, at least, I guess, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so, uh, yeah, any uh, any thoughts from you, Will, about any of that? Is that news to you? Anything exciting <laughs> popping out to you? Uh, well, it's all new to me. Nothing really to say about it, but yeah, very interesting. Awesome, awesome. Um, I did have one other thing I wanted to add that was kind of behind the scenes related. Well, a couple of things. First of all, as I was watching uh, the interviews and things on the uh, Blu-ray that I've got, one of the things that came up was that uh, obviously the Daleks were massively popular, so this movie had a premiere at Cannes, and apparently at one point John Lennon was scared by three Daleks. <laughs> to which I've just written, that has to have been the most 1960s headline you'll ever see. <laughs> John Lennon, terrified by Daleks. Anyway. Dude, dude probably had a, and, uh, a flashback. Thought you were tripping still back in India. <laughs> Me the Daleks. Oh, don't do that. 
but yeah. Um, <laughs> I'll get into some other changes and things, but suffice to say uh, that when you know the film came out, it was not a commercial. Uh, it was not a critical hit. Sorry, the critics really savaged it, especially in the US. But it was a commercial hit, and as you say, fan groups and us nerds have kind of kept the love for it alive. So that's why it still prevails to this day. And if you haven't seen it and you're a Doctor Who fan, I recommend giving it a go. Uh, well, it's available nowhere, pretty much. Unless you get physical. Well, it used to be on TV all the time when we were younger. It was the sort of thing you would see on like Saturday afternoons and things. But that's but, why um, I, yeah. I had that conversation with you, how you're not going to see classic stories on mainstream TV. And I know you said, oh, what about the Dodders colorization? I was like, yeah, because that's colorization cut down. You're not going to get a black and Well, it's not black and white, but you're not going to see these films on like BBC One, are you? Yeah, but I didn't say it would be on BBC One. I said they would do it on BBC Four because they'd already been doing that. <laughs> but they haven't been. They haven't. They haven't. Yeah, they have. Been. They have. Well, not for the last uh, three. They definitely yeah. have fairly recently. I mean, well, I say recently. It was probably 10 years ago because it was for the 50th anniversary. But yeah. It'd be uh, great well, if it was brought back because it was on Amazon, but then they got rid of it recently. I don't maybe see them going maybe along the yeah. universe thing. Perhaps they're waiting for that. I don't, I'm not sure if they would have the rights, but it would be nice if it gets added the two films to the uh, the, the new like Hooniverse section on the iPlayer. I yeah. suppose we keep our fingers crossed because there's some things that are still yet to work their way over there that are coming. Completely I have forgotten. no idea how ITV have rights to it though for ITVX. That's how I watched it. That's, that's the kind of place we used to always see it. Yeah, it's the rights are kind of all over the place because it was Amicus, which is you know obviously since then disappeared it's just been revived this year by another film studio but i believe the rights reverted to warner brothers because they ended up using the daleks from the dalek movies in uh looney tunes back in action right okay they, they were apparently was the, residents yeah. of area 51 yeah that was one of the cameos i forgot to say as well though it should be noted that um the movie daleks are obviously different from the tv daleks but the movie Daleks actually first appeared on TV because the uh, the production borrowed some of them for the filming of The Chase. So their actual first appearance was when The Chase aired, which came out before the oh. movie. <laughs> um, that's neither here nor there. We're not here to talk about... Well, we are kind of here to talk about classic Doctor Who because a lot of it feeds in, not least because a lot of the uh, story of Doctor Who and the Daleks, I have to say, is pretty much beat for beat the same as the uh, the TV version of the serial to the point where... When watching, I was kind of thinking, it's very generous of Milton Subotsky to give himself a screenwriting credit for essentially just chopping a few pages from Terry Nation's existing script. <laughs> you know, um, That's, you know, to, to, not for me to debate and fair play. You get paid, man, if you did the work or, or whatnot. So, yeah. Uh, I did want to ask a couple of questions before we jump into the review. Uh, what uh, Can you remember the first time, DK? We don't need to ask Will this. What was the first time you watched the movie? Because we know it was a few hours ago. <laughs> but can you remember the first time you saw it and what kind of impact it had on you the first time? Not, uh, not with any great specifics. I just know I was very young and I remember it kind of blew my mind so to speak uh I, my parents used to sit me in front of the tv and watch all the you know the classics like the original star trek and back then it was wonder woman uh, linda carter and all that kind of stuff so they tried me on doctor who and it I, yeah as we were saying earlier i think they showed this every what every second month or every bank holiday on the bbc yeah. so yeah, I, just, oh, I always saw it on ITV or Channel Four. To be honest, I can remember seeing it a lot with that. I could, I could be mistaken with that. I could, I, you know, it's, I mean, there, there were only three channels back then. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was. 
I can't, I can't remember any specifics, but I could just remember really like it. And I really, I really identified with Ian, hence the avatar, simply because I knew <laughs> Roy Castle from Record Breakers. Record Breakers. I knew that was going to come up. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, to, to see him, it was kind of something to latch on to, you know? Yeah. It's weird how they kind of have British celebrities in both of these, because then uh, Bernard Cribbins obviously turns up as the companion in the sequel as well. So... Yeah. Long before doing a modern Doctor Who, but yeah, um, yeah, fair enough. Uh, yeah, I can't remember. I can't really remember the first time I saw this film because, again, like you, it kind of blurs. But I knew it was it was definitely on television, uh, and it would have been obviously after I was like fourteen, fifteen. So I probably was quite late to it compared to most. Uh, and yeah, I can only assume it was like a Saturday or a Sunday afternoon, and it was on, like I said, ITV or Channel Four because I was actually born on the exact same year that the fourth channel launched. So. Unlike some of you, DK, I didn't live through the three-channel period. So, uh, yeah. I, so no, I, I do remember. remember exactly, yeah. I do remember we we got a, a a video player, and it's that that long ago that it was actually a, a Betamax, not a VHS. And when I got into Doctor Who, there were only two Doctor Who tapes, and one was Revenge of the Cybermen, and the other was this. So when I was a kid, uh, even when it wasn't on. Uh, my dad used to rent this from the store, and I would watch this repeatedly. Ah, nice. I do have that with some films, but just not with Doctor Who, not with this. I've only ever really owned it on Blu-ray recently. Um, but although I am interested in the 4K restoration, I'm told it's very good. And obviously, with bright colours and cool sound, I can imagine it would be. So if it comes down in price, maybe someday. <laughs> we'll wait and see. Um, but yeah, just to, to remind the audience as well, then, like I said, we're going to be comparing as we go this to the original serial because it's kind of inevitable. But you can watch a cut down, colorized version of that, uh, which will be coming on BBC4 as we finish our podcast when you're listening. So again, we can't compare to that version, but it'll be interesting to see what they deem unnecessary and cut out in the same way that the movie did. Uh, yeah. And I think that's all of the random rambles out of the way. So let's get into talking about the movie. And I've been dying to to come to this first of all, Will, and to ask you, you just saw it for the first time. So just overall, as spoiler-free as possible, what were your overall thoughts uh, when you sort of first finished the movie about it? Uh, so I spoke to you, I managed with you, and I didn't like the first hour as much as the second half whereas you liked the second uh you liked the first half but not the second did i butcher I, that i wouldn't say that i would say that it, it, to me it felt like it started to drag a little bit in the last half hour when it was just very much work doing the whole dalek run around and you know yeah, I, i'm I kind of a yeah <laughs> sorry that was where the like the big budget came in to play in the final half hour with more of the set pieces like in the end let's talk about the end for example when the Daleks come out and they're like um, when they were sneaking up on the fowls and whatever when they were about to storm the Dalek city and they just yeah. like open up the ground and it's just like this white vibrant LED light and I just thought that's so unnecessary but it looks awesome so it's just like oh, it looks good, yeah. grip my attention more so than the first half hour where it's like it's very much like what the t original TV serial was were going through familiar grounds, and by the time they were like imprisoned, I was like, I've seen this beat for beat, I'm bored now. Yeah, I see what you mean, but for me, I just got annoyed because a lot of the stuff that they do add, which, as you say, sometimes it might be because it looks good, you know, now that you have color and you're going to be on the big screen, but a lot of it just seemed perfunctory and pointless. Like when they open that thing that you mentioned, like Tracy Island, and there's a big shining light or 
the Thals like try to shine mirrors to fool the Daleks and it works for like 0.6 seconds. And it's like, well, that was pointless. <laughs> and um, yeah. just little silly changes like we mentioned earlier, like um, DK alluded to the idea that they try to go through the lake of mutations, which never comes to anything because they couldn't actually afford to show you anything. So some guy just dies from something off screen. And then as I was discussing with you earlier, Will, I just hate the moment of... It takes away all of the dramatic pathos when they're trying to get cr across the caverns and stuff, and that guy does the whole, oh, I'm going to cut this rope and sacrifice myself to save everyone else. And in the TV serial, it's actually a really powerful moment, and you know you can feel the guilt yeah. and the guy dies and everything. And then in the film, for whatever reason, maybe because being kiddie-friendly or whatever, it's just like, I'm cutting this rope, I'm going to fall. Oh, never mind, there's a handy ledge here. Pull me back up. Yeah. Like, oh, that that tight scene is pointless. That's why men is like, it doesn't dwell on the moment. For example, when he looks, the foul looks up at um, Ian, he's not really struggling. He's being pulled up, but he still decides to cut it anyway. Like, it doesn't build up <laughs> the anticipation well at all. It just, like, happens out of nowhere. And then you think, what the hell is what the hell has he done? He's just killed himself for no reason, and then like mm. have a cutaway and they cut back to him. And it's like, oh, he's alive, and I was like, that is utterly, utterly pointless. And it's because that's the first time I think it dipped into the absurdity of the the actual uh, absurdity of Doctor Who, like the TV show, in terms of so something you wouldn't. I would say that's one of the few things that the serial actually does better than the movie. Well, yeah, I said that moment like, is played a lot better in the TV show. Well, that cave scene Sorry? in general is like a whole serial and a half in the TV show, whereas it's like five minutes. Oh, yeah. Mercifully. Oh, yeah. I mean, overall, yeah, for, fair enough, definitely. But, uh, yeah. Okay. Um, <clears throat> uh, any thoughts, DK, about, uh, you know, changes along those lines that were made? And uh, did you have a point where the film kind of got a bit maybe boring for you or you one bit that you like more than the other? It's it, weirdly enough how one of you likes the start, one of you likes the 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 ending. I can't. I didn't say like the middle. <laughs> it is. I, there, there's a there's a kind of lull in the middle for me where sometimes if I'm if I'm not careful, I can actually you know just start drifting off. Which you know, I could put that down to my. It's head. one of those films. Yeah, it's one of those films. To be fair, where you've seen it enough times, it is comfort blanket type thing where yeah, yeah there is a risk of of really drifting off. It is. It's like when you slap an old episode of Next Generation on or something. You just sat there. It's nice and warm. You're watching it, and the next thing you know, you know, you're late for a recording. <laughs> next thing you know, you're waking up after having dreams of being exterminated by <laughs> fire extinguishers. <laughs> yeah. um, so I'll bring that up actually because it's it's just come into my head now. That was one of the things that kind of bugged me as well was. They did mention, okay, they weren't allowed to use flamethrowers, which was their original intention, because obviously health and safety, and it's not kiddie-friendly. And they apparently... Uh, when they, they turn down the door. Oh, they yeah. do, but it's only one, and it's like it's 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 uh, specifically called in to, to break through the door, whereas it would have been yeah. like every... That's what every Dalek would have been shooting flame. <clears throat> but yeah, supposedly the director, Gordon Fleming, uh, had said that they did try, or they did look at doing the effects like the TV show, but no laser effect didn't look like ridiculously cheesy. And then when they tried the whole negative effect that they do on TV, it didn't work at all. So yeah, as a result, you have that really stupid... They're just walking around spraying fire extinguishers out of their guns. Yeah. I mean, in black and white, it does look fantastic. <coughs> I love that original effect. I love it brought back, actually. Whereas with colour, maybe it does look a little bit shit. We just don't know. Well, yeah. with what you were capable of in 1965, I don't blame the director or anything at all. It's just a shame that... I don't know. It's just a shame they couldn't have tried a little better because for me, I don't, I don't think the 
spraying of CO2 does does work. It never feels all that threatening, especially when you see. I know it happens in the TV show, but when you see it sprayed on Ian and all it does is, oh, my legs have gone dead for a bit. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, that's not very uh, very terrifying, but yeah. <clears throat> I thought me. we could have differentiated um, a bit with like the, perhaps the color of it, perhaps add some steam in terms of like having a difference between uh, stunning someone and killing someone because uh, like when it got sprayed at uh, the files, for example, I was like, come on, get up. It's just your legs like broken. Stand up, you're just yeah. not dead. But then he turned out to be dead. I was like, okay. Yeah, it's very weird. Yeah, like that. But again, it's it's kind of like I said, it was appealing, I think, more or trying to appeal to a kid market. And it was riding this wave, uh, which is something else I wanted to ask about, actually, because I'm not really old enough to remember. And I don't think even you are, DK, the whole Dalek <laughs> mania craze. But, um, <laughs> but I, I don't think you can really talk about this film without talking about Dalek mania, because it is a result of it. And it's, it definitely was at the absolute crest of that wave where, you know, everybody was obsessed with Daleks. Like you could argue... The only reason Doctor Who's still on is because of the Daleks, because of their, you know, they were the second uh, multi-part serial to have aired, and that was the one that captured everyone's imagination. And yeah, the world went Dalek crazy. They make some fantastic uh, documentaries and films about it, which I do recommend watching. But uh, so, DK, are you kind of like aware of that? Was that something that was still going on when you were, uh, you know, coming to this film or aware of Doctor Who? I, w I wasn't aware of Dalek. The, the only thing that brought it up to me is. Uh... I, I was working at WH Smith during the release of the Dalek Mania documentary and they brought out like some kind of big box set with it and I, I had no idea until that point to be honest but yeah I mean in some respects and I'm probably going to get flayed alive for this but in some respects I think it it has been as much of a detriment to Doctor Who as it has been you know a bonus simply because of the fact that you know, that thing where we just have to include dialects in every series, pretty much. I could do without that a lot of the time. They're good, but no, you can, you they can be overused sometimes. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a different debate in terms of the TV series, but I do think, personally, I think it's kind of silly to, to say that uh, the, you, you don't want to do anything with them because... They were that popular for a time. Like Dalek Mania was named after Beatlemania. People were going crazy. They were buying any merchandise, and they were huge. Do you know what I mean? Like, um, so I don't think it's it's the audience necessarily. Like, oh, they just got sick. I think you know you could, and I don't think personally I ever get sick of the Daleks. I always love you know. There's a reason these films exist, and and that they do still keep reappearing. And I think they are kind of the primary appeal of the film because when you look at it, even the posters and things. Oh, there's no sign yeah. of Peter Cushing on them at yeah. all. You know, it's... No one cares about that doddering old guy reading the eagle. They yeah. want these brightly coloured things shooting CO2 at everyone. Yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah, but the posters, the full colour posters of like just all Daleks everywhere and there's hundreds I, I, of them and stuff. And It yeah. appealed, I think it appealed to, to kids because unlike, you know, the TV series, this they were in colour back then and they weren't mm. just in yeah, colour. Yeah. They were in full colour, you know, you had the reds and you had the blue ones. And I'm, I'm not being funny. I'm not being disrespectful to, you know, the characters that died in the story and stuff like that. But it was every kid's dream to just get inside of a Dalek casing and take it for a spin. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah absolutely. Uh, I don't know if you remember. They'd probably gone by the time you were around because you're a freaking whippersnapper too. But... Uh, 
when you used to go into amusement arcades on the coast, they used to, you know, those like rides that they have outside shops where you put five pence in and you go on like a little ride. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They used to have a Dalek one. Oh, well. You used to go in, sit inside the Dalek, and it had got like a, like a glass screen, which you presume was the Dalek vision, and you could move the eye stalk around and you could move the arms and it would just like spin and... and shout exterminate and stuff like that and kids just love that kind of stuff so i can i can understand why they appealed so much yeah oh i definitely recommend if you have a chance to watch the dalek mania documentary it was packaged as its own thing for a while but i think it's in fact i know it's a special feature on the blu-ray that you can get of the movie uh, of doctor who and the daleks now because it's like an hour-long documentary but it's fascinating because a lot of the toys and things they make are just so lame looking to us now like they would never fly, but everyone was just like, oh, it looks enough like this thing that we love. And, you know, they had inflatable ones and little corgi toy ones and all sorts. It's, yeah, just fascinating to watch the impact that it had. I used um, to have a, a red Dalek, a red toy Dalek, that when you press the button down on the top, it would scream exterminate. <laughs> I by don't the time uh, it doubt that for a minute. The eye stalk and the arms had all broken off. It was, it was just <laughs> like, you know, a, a screwball thing with... Uh, with with batteries that didn't really work anymore yeah it's weird though because i think it's a very generational thing like will were you aware of this like level of dalek mania or is it just the sort of thing where now you're like oh the daleks are appearing all the time and i'm, I'm sick of it we don't want to watch them kind of thing well i knew the Dal uh, dalek mania thing was a thing in the 60s of course because of like Phil yeah, yeah. We're hearing it. Um, you're watching the movie did you think oh the daleks why didn't they have a different enemy or were you like oh cool daleks you know? Oh, if I'm watching a film called Doctor Who and the Daleks and there were no Daleks, I would be literally <laughs> disappointed. Well, yeah, obviously, but I mean, like, for, for Doctor Who's first big screen type thing, does part of you think, why didn't they uh, what you know, else adapt? Do? I don't know. Fucking monoids. <laughs> no. I was just going to say, why, 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 why were you like, oh, I, I was hoping to watch Doctor Who and the Void or whatever. <laughs> no, no, no. Okay. And who wouldn't? I'm sure here. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, by this point, they hadn't even invented the Cybermen or anything. But yeah, it's just amazing to me. Anyway, yes, that's just me in terms of like the Dalek. Like I say, I find it fascinating from a cultural standpoint, just how huge it is and how that design is largely unchanged from 1963 when it debuted. And yeah, we can talk about the changes to the movie one, but it is essentially recognizably the exact same thing. And if you look yeah. at it objectively, it is kind of daft. I mean, uh, sink plunger a whisk <laughs> they have lasted i mean they're pretty much synonymous now when even these days when someone mentions doctor who the, the first thing that people normally go to is the daleks yeah precisely and i think you couldn't you know you you mentioned the word dalek to anybody in the street whether they've watched the show or not and they'll all go exterminate because it's you know cultural zeitgeist doesn't it it's just one of those things they've done you know tv adverts for everything from Radio rentals to Hamlet cigars and stuff. So I remember a yeah. Heineken advert, I believe. Really? Okay, yeah. Weird, but yeah, it's just weird how this design captured the imagination. But again, uh, I don't want to go too far into that. It's just it, worth noting because this is like the, in the uh, film. I'm just going to point out there now. I think we're all going to mention it, but I may as well bring it up now. The the lights on the Dalek top mm -hmm. they pissed me off. I was going to mention that. Yep, absolutely. How, I was uh, going to mention yeah, that, actually, if it came up as well. Yeah, and it was like, if they spoke, then the lights wouldn't go off continually. It would be when they spoke. Whereas the ones in the background that don't talk, they just go off anyway. And I just thought... Yeah, Fleming, he I, didn't, uh, 
I've got it here. He says he didn't originally realise that the Daleks' dome lights only flash in synchronisation with their speech. Consequently, he had them randomly pulsed to make their scenes more interesting, which caused problems for uh, Milton Sabotsky. When the film was assembled in post-production, editing the footage meant that he had to severely rewrite some dialogue to fit the flashes, which resulted in unavoidably staccato delivery for the creatures on occasion. Yeah, it's what, David Graham, I feel for, because trying to fit that into yeah. random flashes when, you know, you've got four words and 17 flashes, go. <laughs> but yeah, um, I do mention that in my conclusion. I'm sure I'll get to it later. But yeah, I, I think from a nerd level as well, I just think the dome lights are too big. <laughs> Even though I know that's really petty, but I'm just like, yeah, too big. Don't like I it. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Um, but I mean, in terms of anything else, there's not really that much changed, except like you said, I do think the color really works for them. Like, I don't know how many people watching the black and white one cared about that kind of thing, but I, I do think it was a wise choice to have, like you said, blue and red, bright red and, and black and, you know, the differentiated red leader and stuff that would eventually come into the TV show as it got into color. Um, because, you know, imagine if they'd all just been gunmetal grey, it would have been a bit boring when you're marketing the film as technical and Marvel. And yeah. Yeah, I think it works. <laughs> when I went from the movie to the TV show, I thought the dialects looked so dull. <laughs> I like them, don't get me wrong. It's just, it's amazing. That, oh, they're, that they're okay. I mean, yeah. you know, they're, they're never going to be on a parade on Broadway. They are essentially Nazis. So, you know, gunmetal grey is yeah, the way well. it's But when you come to that from you know, bright, technical stuff like that. He, 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 does, he does come across in a, on occasion like a bit of a downgrade. I, yeah. I have and to I disagree. Do. I think they're, they're, they've never been more menacing than their first ever serial. My profile picture, that moment in episode one or two, I think it's episode one, uh, where Barbara is trapped. I'm so glad they didn't replicate that in the film, actually, because there was a moment where they would like, the, all the doors were closing, it's... like in the first 20 minutes. And I was like, okay, this is going to be like the cliffhanger where the Dalek comes in, is trapped and more, and then it just never came. I was like, that's really disappointing because that it's is a terrifying. very fine line, though. Because you say it looks terrifying, I say it's somebody waving a sink plunger at an actress. It's an iconic moment, and <laughs> yeah, if you buy into the world, it does work, in my opinion. Uh, yeah, I don't know, it's hard to say. Maybe they tried it and it just didn't, but I, I think. They got very lucky there, and Jacqueline Hill's performance and the fact that it's black and white and atmospheric and whoever it was that directed the serial pulled off a really iconic shot, and it is great. But like I said, you do run the risk if you try and replicate it of looking like why somebody waving a sink plunger at this actor, um, yeah. which is a bit iffy. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, but no, I think in terms of the, the technicalness of the Daleks, I think it also kind of it, it lends the film an air of belonging to that like 50s and 60s sci-fi pulp type thing that you saw like a lot of this film reminds me of things like forbidden planet and stuff out of america where it's you know some people might call it cheesy or camp some people would just call it high fantasy or you know sci-fi that wasn't particularly well regarded but i think this film fits into bits like that really well and uh, i wasn't you know i wasn't sure if that you guys would agree or not that that it's sort of because uh, it wasn't popular in the states so maybe i'm wrong but do you guys kind of see a link there or, or not yeah i can i can you know, I can uh, agree with that. Yeah, oh, fair enough. Yes, no, much to build off that. No, can't say anything. Mm, okay. Um, well, quickly, because we haven't really talked about it yet, so we will talk about the changes to 
the kind of central idea of the show. Because just to push back to all the nerds that have probably been shouting for the the last like few whatever it is half an hour since you did the BTS, I will say DK, they do mention that the Doctor's from another planet in literally the pilot. I don't know where your information came from, um, but yeah. So the idea that he was a human being and Doctor Who was his name is is kind of new. The whole Doctor Who thing is debatable because there are moments in the show where they they sort of indicate that it is a name. Uh, people will always point to the war machines and things like that. Um, but certainly it's never made as explicit as it is here. Uh, you know, no, nobody ever calls the Doctor Doctor Who in the way that Roy Castle band is in about every two minutes here in a way that feels really weird. And then uh, if you're like me, you start wondering, hang on, does that mean that the other two are called Susan Who and Barbara Who? <laughs> is it an actual surname? <laughs> What's going on with this? But, I mean, yeah. they have Susan so, who's a very childlike actor, uh, a very childlike character in Doctor Who in terms of in the actual TV show. And in the film, they actually have her played by a child. So she's acting mm. her age. I feel so bad for Carol Ann Falls. Watching this film, she must have been like, my characterization is literally that of a child. And it, it, well, it I mean, also with a child, actually. And I thought she was actually... You say a... that, but at least, oh, at, least her character got some, at least her character got some characterization. Barbara does absolutely nothing in either version of the story. <laughs> so, you know... I mean, William Honnold decides to have a, like, a rest in two episodes. He's just like, yeah, I'm poisoned. I'm going to sleep here. Well, that's what they did in the cast series. It was like, oh, you've got to have a holiday, so disappear from the plot for two episodes. Yeah. But yeah. Over them, like, yeah. bringing up the premise of, like, why they have to go into the sea and stuff like that, which is largely unchanged from the TV show. I did like how we got to see, like, the flu lake. I think in the TV show, it was only, like, hypothetical. We didn't see what the problem was. Right. I don't know why he took definitely saw the uh, city, but yeah, you definitely saw the petrified jungle and everything. But um, of course, yeah, because like I said, it was very much like oh, we're still landed in the same place and it's all the same and Daleks and dolls and blah blah. But uh, again, yeah, yeah. it's kind of yeah. Anyway, for me, this just maybe it's because I didn't come to the you know I came to it from a point where the TV show had developed this law. But for me, it just is jarring that this is just like a random dude who has invented a time machine in his backyard, which is bigger on the inside. And it's just kind of like, I, I can't reconcile this. It seems too bizarre and outlandish. And it's just kind of like, so it's a human old dude, invents a time machine, doesn't tell anybody or anything. And it's like, my head is blown. I just, I have to have that law. And is that just me? Do you guys find yourself not bothered by it at all? I'm not bothered by it, but I think from around that time, if you've seen some Roger Corman movies, you could take anything on face value. So yeah. when when you come in, when I when you came into this, as as I say, I think this was the the first the first experience with with Doctor Who and all that kind of thing. So I kind of took that on board. When you then watch the TV show and come back and you have all that baggage, you kind of you kind of see almost as some kind of, I don't know, wish.com version. Hmm. See, I, I'm the opposite. I would say the film comes off like that because it just seems like... They don't no, that's what I'm saying. I said really, once, you, once yeah, you've yeah. watched the TV oh, sorry, yeah. series and you have that baggage, you know, from, as you say, the end of the second Doctor on, that he's a, you know, he's from, from well, he's, I mean, he's not really from Gallifrey anymore, but, you wow. know, he's got two hearts and all that kind of stuff. And then you come back to this... This very much seems like a kind of Poundland version of Doctor Who, if you know what I mean. And I think it, yeah, no, completely. Does it almost a disservice? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's... he took the grandfather thing so seriously. I thought he was going to start making racist jokes. So it was like, yeah, 
that's the one way to make it in <laughs> like a proper grandfather, isn't it? But yeah, they took that really seriously. They made Susan a child, which is a really ballsy move, and they made Ian yeah. a ass. So they, I think they did yeah. do the characters an injustice, in my opinion. And when you, yeah, I was lack of development yeah. as well, like you said, Michael, with uh, Barbara. Oh, completely. I mean, Barbara is completely pointless in the movie and in the serial. Like I said, she's there to scream on a couple of occasions, but um, yeah, it's it's weird because I was going to say to me, it kind of jars that they don't bother explaining little things like why is TARDIS, which by the way isn't named the TARDIS, which again bugs me. But why is it like bigger on the inside and stuff? And they don't even give an explanation because I think it's one of those sci-fi-ish type movies where part of you is just supposed to think magic or whatever, like a wonder or don't well, even Ian worry about it. Point, yeah. he? And Susan gives yeah. like a one line answer, which is, you know, the equivalent of Star Trek's Technobabble. And then it's never kind of dwelt on again. Yeah. It's yeah. But I, I kind of, like I said, I, I prefer the TV series, this thing about, you know, dimensionally transcendental. And we have this kind of level of technology and science because we might even be from the future. Who knows when it's just, you know, a doddering old granddad has invented a time machine and broken the laws of dementiality and stuff in his backyard. I mean, I get it because you have to get you have to get to the story, and you're adapting the second serial as well as having to do the things that you know the very first pilot episode does. So, and you know, audiences probably would have been like, "Get to the Dalek planet" yeah. or whatever. So I get it, but yeah, it is just jarring because, like you said, it feels like. You can tell from the marketing and everything as well. It feels a lot like they're just like, well, we need to have Doctor Who there to get there, I guess. But then we don't really care about the character all that much. Um, yeah. Anyway, certainly that's how it came off with me. In, in terms of what you were mentioning, like characterization, yes, I think there's way too much slapstick kind of nonsense at times. Sometimes it's fun, and sometimes you're just like, all right, come on, dude. You know, you could take something seriously. Um, but I get it. Again, it's Roy Castle. He's an entertainer and it's funny. He's pulling it off. And But what really jarred was that, like, most people would consider this like an alternate first Doctor. And yeah. yet the, the Doctor Who character doesn't act anything like William Hartnell. Like he's he's if anything he's probably closer to the Patrick Troughton version. He's constantly like impish and wandering around and oh, yes, oh. and like I'm like this. He's, he's like Willy Wonka when he should be like the the grumpy like you know right. don't do that yeah. kind of thing. But I think they were going for a more child friendly, you know, kind of aspect to it. That's yeah, you know, and I think that explains the slapstick as well. I mean, you've got to you've got to. Look at it this way, Sabotsky and Amicus were well known at this point for doing horror movies. Yeah. So when they're gonna switch and do a child friendly movie, and especially around that time when in, in the sixties, you got your carry on movies and, and all that kind of thing. But yeah, obviously this didn't do well in the States, but in, in, in England at least you've got that kind of like cheeky humor. And I think in order to get it closer to family fun, they're gonna inject a lot of kind of things for the kids basically and i think uh you know what would look like a misanthropic old bastard as a doctor i don't think that would work so i think they were you know i, I, I don't i don't mind cushing's character in this here's yeah. the thing by the time this film was coming out you were getting towards like william Hartnell's final like series and whatever and stories and i think by that point by season three he was far more joyful and cheerful and much more like the movie portrayal because you're in series three you have like serials like 
uh, what's called it, the war machines. You have the gunfires. Serials where he's like really joyous and like full of life. The Daleks, this is a weird thing, but again, it's quite nitpicky. The Daleks point out that the prisoners are intelligent and dangerous, but they're going to keep them alive because they might be useful. And I'm just like, this seems an awful lot like, you know, you're keeping them alive because the plot's demanding it. And then as soon as they do escape and there is a threat, it's like, now you can kill them. Oh, yeah, now you want them dead that they've actually kind of mucked you over, you know? I do like the scene, and I think it's in the TV show as well, where, you know, they, they ambush the Dalek, you know, working out that they're using static electricity, and they ambush it and then take the creature out of the case, which is really cool when you see the glimpse of the claw. Uh, you know, it, it's good that the, sh the, t the film remembers that, you know, they're cyborgs, there's a living creature in there, and then you get the cool scenes of Ian riding around in the Dalek casing and then getting stuck and the Daleks breaking through the door. I really liked all that. I thought that was played for the perfect level of tension and Again, for me, I think does it better than the TV show manages from memory because uh, I'd never felt that level of like, oh, countdown, he's, he's going to get exterminated, they're going to bust through. And, uh, you know, the cool moment when you see them shoot at the Dalek casing and you think he's gone and nope, the elevator's moving, so he's on the lift and he's he's up there with them, you know. Um, I didn't wonder if that was just written in, like the elevator bit where he couldn't get into the elevator it was written just because the set was like faulty because they didn't get the lip of the lift right with the set. Of what that could be. I know. Oh, I think it's 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 from the original story. It's just one of those things where, like I said, it's to give you that extra little bit of peril. But I mean, like, obviously, the the lift doesn't look fantastic. It's you know, nineteen sixty five film set. But mm. I was still, you know, I, I was more drawn into that point than I was in some other moments. I do like as well that the Daleks, just like in the TV show, are so petty that when they realize they can't get out and, and you know survive on the planet, they're just their solution is fine, atom bomb the whole place. Then if we can't get out there, nobody's getting it. Jeez, <laughs> like, man. Daleks are a bit angry, whatever. Uh, yeah. And I think I've mentioned a few other things. <laughs> that was the other related to what I was saying earlier. There's a line where the Dalek actually says to to Doctor Who, "We do not believe you are capable of making such a machine." And I've just written, "Yeah, me neither." <laughs> <laughs> but he did, you know. <laughs> and uh, just one quick thing I want to get into: uh, what are your thoughts on that? I'm going to throw it open to you to uh, this idea of like, oh, they're pathetic pacifists. You can't do that. You've got to fight. You'll fight for something when I threaten your woman or whatever. So, what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> Uh, I mean, it was a different time back then. We'd only been, what, 20 years outside of World War Two, where the, yeah. the prominent thing yeah. was, you know, you had to fight for your country, you had to fight for this, you had to fight for that. It was seen as very much a, a patriotic duty, whereas now it's it's more a case of, oh, you know, I don't want no part of that. So it, it, that's yeah. the one thing where, you know, it goes over and, and takes the and takes the Thal woman and, you know, provokes him into saying, see, you will fight for something. It's it's just very much of its time. Like I said, it's... Yeah. I, I class it alongside those carry-on movies I mentioned earlier. It's, it, I, just see, I, I don't get bothered by that because, like you said, it's of the time and I kind of get what they were going for. But there's a little moment later where it's, like, indicated that whatever his name is, Aladdin or Elidon, has now changed so much that when one of the... Uh, Thals is trying to be cowardly, he gives him a slap, and I'm like, all right, come on, you were you were saying the same thing like 20 minutes ago, come on, dude. <laughs> and now well, at like, that point, you just, <laughs> at that point, you just imagine uh, Miguel Ferrer from Hot Shots Part Do saying, war, it's fantastic. 
<laughs> I have changed my mind. Yeah. Fighting is definitely the best yeah, thing. What is this? This is awesome. Give me a break. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Oh, I do love your obscure film references at times, Deacon. <laughs> uh, yeah. I just said, yeah, related to what you were saying about how I didn't like the, the oh, well, again, I didn't, I wouldn't say I didn't like the end part, but I like it less. To me, I've, I, again, when I look at my notes, I've just written that it's very much like we're running around, we're getting captured, we escape, and it goes like in a loop. And I'm like, all oh, right, the TV show does this a lot, especially when it's got like six or seven episodes to plot, to pod out, but, uh, to pad out, sorry, but like, I, I think you kind of hinted this as well, Will. It's amazing that all of those scenes towards the last half hour still somehow feel plodding, even though it's, you know, it's 10 minutes instead of about 50 compared to the TV version. No, said, no, no, I disagree. I said vice versa. You say at the end uh, meanders a little bit. Yeah. I just I still found that plodding, yeah. And you did say you found it boring, but you said that at the start of the film rather than the end, I think. Yeah, yeah it's because at the start you have a lot of the same beats, you have like the plots exactly the same, whereas in the latter half, and I think this is in the original serial, but I think it's done far better here. It's when they climb the mountain and then they have the like really beautiful establishing shot of the city. I thought that had such better payoff in this film and in the cave yeah. scene, mercifully short. So I think. I don't really see a problem with it. I think it was a breezy, okay. like, half hour. Yeah, okay, fair enough. And worth noting that you obviously do think the production value, which you would expect, is better than what the TV show managed. So, you know, it's much more impressive, the, the Scarrow City and the Daleks and the, the Vistas and things like that, which, again, I completely agree with, by the way. I think it's... it's. But, again, you'd expect that. It's a big screen film budget compared to, you know, BBC... Studio I mean, H or whatever it was they were doing. I mean, I think yeah. like the climax of this film, I think we've actually seen quite similar in the, like the first Doctor series, like uh, the Mechanoids episodes. I think the conclusion to that serial. What serial was that? Was that what serial the was the Mechanoids in? The chase. The ending of the chase is very similar to the ending of this film. So I don't really see like the budget making that big a difference. I think, of course, the sets were far grander, larger, but in terms of looking better, I can't say they did, in my opinion. And like the ends, where like I feel it was clever, where like the Daleks destroyed themselves based on like them maneuvering the Daleks. But again, that's stuff we've seen in Dalek Invasion: Rear of the Chase. It's nothing new. Mm. That's weird because you were saying earlier that you you liked the kind of scenes at the end and you did think they were more majestic. I I, I, I agree. I think they I thought they looked fantastic, but I'm saying the TV show didn't differ in quality that badly compared to it. Okay, I see. Okay, fair enough. When when the Daleks Um, turned around and Aim was like Daleks, and then they all turned around instantaneously and shot all the machine. I thought. That's a brilliant set piece. And it's like, we had this conversation, DK, with uh, Star Trek. Weird, we're talking about Doctor Who and I mentioned Star Trek. That's weird. Usually vice versa. <laughs> but we were, we were reviewing an episode and it was like really low budget and they had to like reuse cast members and there's like a crew of 40, whereas we only saw about five. Whereas with this, with the files, we saw a scene where they came into the Dalek City and there must have been 20, 25 of them. And I thought that was really impressive casting how they could get that many people just for that one shot i think it actually added like a it was decent wall building whereas when you went into like the jungle and the tardis and they sit around the tardis after like the ambush you only see about 10 of them there and i thought oh that's a bit naff so in terms of like the production value like it differs it's up and down but mostly like i'm i'm making reference to like the daleks 
no, uh, the Dalek invasion of Earth in the Chase, which are later serials, which are far better than the uh, the Dalek serial, which this is adapted off. Mm. When we actually actually think of the Dalek serial, it was really really crap. I think it, it's not even Terry Nation's um, one of his best scripts. I think it's a dismal script. And like to summarize the film, in my opinion, I know we're not there yet, but I think it can only be it's an adaptation of something that wasn't very good in the first place and like you said michael it's beat for beat for a lot of it all he did is like amazing that he took a script uh, cr- uh credit for it because it is essentially the same story just like it's, it can only be so much better and it's i gave it the same score this film than i did to the original serial yes it's better yes it's got uh bare production values but ultimately it boils down to the same things and that's the problem mm. it didn't do anything new that's why points yeah. that stand out to me like the ground opening up that doesn't happen in zero that's something new that's why i prefer the second half hopefully that makes sense i see yeah no i see what you mean and uh, i would say because it is related to the writing so it makes sense absolutely and i would say that the overall story is weak uh, which is way more evident when you take it into a seven-part tv show um, but I do think there are parts here that are great. It's just that it's the, the whole is not greater than the sum of its parts. Like I love individual scenes and moments and things that they do. Like I said, like the prison escape or escaping up the elevator or the actual, uh, you know, arriving on Scaro and things like that. I think there are some great moments that they execute really well. But like you said, the overall plot that it's all hinging on is very much, ah, okay, <laughs> this is... So this, and like you said, and like you said, it's kind of it was retconned by Terry Nation when he wrote Genesis of the Daleks because, yeah. as an origin, it kind of isn't that good. <laughs> so uh, mm. yeah. Anyway, but uh, would you agree or disagree, DK? Uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I, I kind of see the positives and the negatives in both. Uh, yeah, that's all I can say really on that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, what was I going to say? So, yeah, the, the last thing that I have about the writing that I wanted to talk about, because you kind of said, uh, Will, when we were texting back and forth as you watched, you said, is this the worst ending of any Doctor Who thing ever? And I was like, I've seen worse. It was an attempt at a joke that I think falls completely flat, especially when you've had so much silliness and it's it's another just like, oh, groan. Um, but I get why it's there in terms of how else would you end it. And I, I yeah, don't think um, it's much of, a, of an actor issue, more of a production, because uh, first of all, the green screen looked awful of like the, oh, absolutely, the, charge, yeah, yeah. the charging soldiers and whatever. I thought that was crap. Yeah. And um, that's just stock footage that they stick on the front of the, yeah. where the door should be, you know? Exactly. And I think in terms of, it wasn't, I, I'm not sure if the actor's name who played Ian. Roy Calhoun. There we go. It's not his fault because I thought for what he was given, I thought he did a fantastic job overall. Whereas he like ramped it up to 10 in the final few seconds. Whereas you just have to yeah. the other three and especially the doctor just being like senile on the fucking chair, not doing anything. So I just thought, <laughs> yeah, you're not reciprocating his energy here. That's why it's a bit cringe. And I think it's like, some, it's, is there, um, it's is there a back to the future situation where it like directly <laughs> leads into the next film. I don't know. Oh no, they don't. They they literally do not address it. And in the next film, um, only Susan returns out of these group, uh, and that's only because that's Peter Cushing true. insisted because he kind of was fond of Roberta Tovey. So <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. great. Not addressed at all. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it might be emblematic of the times because it's a very 1960s thing. Like it bugs me when watching the original Star Trek that it feels the need to end every episode on a very lame joke as if like that's the only way to close out something. And it's like, all right, come on, man. <laughs> you know? So I, I see what you're saying. It doesn't bother me horrendously, but it is like, ugh. okay. <laughs> you could have ended on a different beat, but that's what you went with. Right. As I say, uh, without wanting to just launch into a review of the sequel, there's even worse slapstick in that, mind you. Bernard Cribbins, bless him, doing oh. some ridiculous things in that movie. <laughs> uh, anyway, I will be watching that. Um, it's available on ITVX Premium. I may as well utilise it before I cancel it. Yeah, why not? Again, it's only like under an hour and a half, so it's worth a look at least. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you will immediately spot who paid for the film, by the way, because it's it's hard not to see the product placement that's not very subtle in that one. <laughs> uh, do, you, uh, do you prefer this one to the uh, the sequel, Mike? Oh, I do, definitely. Yeah, Like I said, I think um, I, I did say it earlier, but I think this actually improves on the TV serial. Whereas if I was watching the second, like if I'm watching this story, I would always reach for the movie. If I'm watching the second one, I'm never reaching for that film. I'd always reach for the Dalek Invasion of Earth, which I think is so superior. Um, yeah. All right. If I was Would you watching, disagree? <laughs> I, I don't know why. I've always found, even though the, the, the serial itself is far, far better, mm. I for some reason, I always, when it comes to these two movies, I always go for 2150 AD. I don't know why. I, I don't know if it's... Bernard Cribbins, I think Louise is a far better character to Barbara in this. And uh, that's true. And I think Roberta Tolvi is a fantastic actress in that second one. I mean, she's she's all right in this, but I think she's really yeah. good in that. And when she's partnered up with Andrew Keir when they're trying to escape from London, I think uh, I don't know if it's because I feel I feel more of a kinship to it because there's you know there are actual locations from earth that you kind of recognized or or something but it doesn't seem to have that lull in it to me that this one kind of does i can always sit down and watch that even that that silly little scene that you were referring to a, a, a bit ago it still makes me i'm, I'm not going to say it makes me laugh because it's just it's so mental awful. but it, it makes me snigger from time to time yeah oh well Fair enough. Again, I don't want to get too far into it. We'll probably someday, you know, God willing, we might be reviewing the the sequel if we still have viewers by that point. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, sorry. Let's do it. Yeah, someday. <laughs> but yeah. Oh. Um, so, did you guys have any last things just about like the writing and the overall plot? It's very samey from the original show. Yeah, I don't think there's much yeah, you, can, you can you can say. Because we're pretty it's much... It's a bit paper thin, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, well. And yet, it captured the imagination. Like, the idea of the Daleks is so well-loved, and yet, as you said, for an origin, you just think, oh, is that it? But anyway. Um, I, I do so, wonder. It we... does make me wonder, what what was it about them that captured the imagination? Because... Yeah, oh, to me, I think it's entirely the appearance. It, it something... has to be, because it yeah. can't be their attitude. No, absolutely not. No, and like you said, for even as well, there is saying that, mind you, there is something genius about the idea of they're not robots, even though they look like it. They are creatures that have mutated to such a point that they can't live outside of these machines. You know that that is. It, it's not. You know, with sixty, seventy years, whatever of uh, of sci-fi, it doesn't seem that groundbreaking. But it probably was in the sixties, and it's like, oh, okay, 
But even what a cool then, idea. <laughs> even then, you look at the thals and and you know you do have a tendency oh, yeah. to think, my God, nuclear holocaust actually works for some people. <laughs> well, again, uh, without wanting to uh, end up having to cool credit him on this video, I think Kieran Hodgson in his like Mickey Jake version of the Daleks does say, "Yes, we thals are all mutants, but handsome ones who went to Rada." <laughs> and i've even written in my notes yes they were all cursed with the terrible mutation of blonde ball guts and i think um somebody uh somebody in the audience response is like so the dolls have all mutated into drag queens essentially you know? oh, yeah that's, that's i what do happened. remember i think the very first time i saw this where where susan i think glimpses a thal and it's wearing it you know the, the kind of cloak yes uh when i saw that I was, I, was I, I, can't, I can't remember as a child being absolutely terrified of that, thinking, what is it that really? she's... What, yeah, what is it? And then when you actually see the Thals, thinking, oh. <laughs> oh, it was Lily Savage. Oh, well. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, it's one of those things. I mean, again, it's of an era where sci-fi, you know, they weren't doing... Well, they couldn't do prosthetics and complicated things, so an alien was somebody with eyeshadow and gray face paint the, the movie actually adapts really well that sense of the sci-fi-ness of it all and the futurism and I, I i would love to have seen this on the big screen at some point because i think it probably works really well but i never have <laughs> obviously in the first didn't look as bad as the actual tv show either yeah i mean i'll get to it when we talk about the direction but there's certainly a lot of visual stuff that i really like more in the in the film so yeah mm. um but yeah uh, do you want to lead us into a little bit of a chat about the acting, DK? Uh, yeah, we'll we'll go through it. So, you know, we'll start. Cushing, what is everybody's thoughts? I mean, we've already touched upon it with regards to uh, his affability compared to the TV version. But what did you think to his, uh, his acting? So I'll, I'll start with you, Will. Go for okay. it. Well, it's more of a writing thing, but I like how conversely compared to the um tv show he's in it for most of it he's actually like the driving force of the movie in my opinion not in our brother but him uh i like how he's inquisitive i think he portrayed that very well even from the first moment in the in the lounge where it could be a bit anticlimactic because of the reasons we've discussed with it like the human adaptation i think he still has the doctor's whismic energy and I think for the child in me, that was like really appreciated. And I don't think there's a moment in the film where I think he breaks character or anything like that, or he loses like his stride. Because you always got the sense that he was endearing towards um, Susan or Susie. Is, is she even called Susan in the in this film? She is, but he calls her Susie the entire time. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So he's he's got the endearingness that William Hartnell had sometimes towards Susan, and he also has the inquisitiveness uh, William Hartnell had, and he, um, I think he played up to the laughs a bit more, without going over the top, which I thought was appreciated. And he like when he was doing his own thing, being a bit chaotic, he just like gave like Susan a little smirk. He's like, "What the hell is he doing?" And I just noticed those little nuances in his performance. And I thought, yeah, I thought he, he did William Hunnell honour in his performance, in my opinion. Yeah, I think he, I th to me, I think he brought some, he, almost like a kind of childlike awe to most things with mm. regards to uh, the relationship. As you say, there was more of a kinship between him and Susan. I think 
they felt very much on the same level for a lot yeah. of the time. Susan's young, but she's very advanced. The uh, the doctor is kind of old, but he seems very kind of childlike. Very, I'm not going to say naive, but he has that sense of wonder where you know where he's exploring. Yeah, yeah. I've I would have written the word impish. I think that kind of sums it up, doesn't it? He's very, yeah. Um, anyway. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, scientific logic to most things, so I wouldn't call it na naivety. You still had the, the sense that he was like the super genius, and I think you you raised an excellent point about Susan. I think the characterization here of Susan is far far better than what the show gave her, and that's why I felt really bad for Carol and Ford because they yeah. gave a young actress far better stuff to work with. Yeah, yeah, she certainly portrayed way more. I think the TV show. Some kind of starts to hint it might be doing this and then veers away from it. Uh, the whole idea of she's an absolute genius, um, you know, on a level with Doctor Who, uh, which as you're watching, you can it, it skirts the line to me of being a little close to obnoxious um, because she's so young and she's like, I know best. I'm, and I was like, okay, you're, you're very thankfully Roberta Tovey as an actress doesn't let it go over there because she's got the kind of charm to her. Um, but yeah, yeah, again, she, it, she, it's, yeah. she does play precocious quite well. I think in this, yes. I, 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 as I said, I do think she is. She, whether she's more settled in the role, I do think she works better in twenty one fifty AD. But I do like her as a character in this. It is weird that they kind of, they because they've aged her down. They can't do the thing that the TV show does of the whole their Aladon of the Thals, like kind of flirting with her and a bit of a bit of dare I say it sexual tension there because she's like eight years old. <laughs> So when she's supposed to have been bonding with the Thals, I did find that a little jarring because I was like, yeah, kind of. I, I still, I'm still aware of where this comes from. And because you can't do that, I'm just like, no, it's this weird dude doing hanging around this little girl, you know? <laughs> yeah. But when she did like get taken by the Daleks to go over to the, uh, to see the Thals, I did kind of get the, like the subconscious instinct that she'd be okay because by that point of yeah. course she's very intelligent she's very inquisitive she knows what she's doing she knows her surroundings she's already like been into the daleks like room and then she nabs the pencil and chucked it into her pocket and was like okay i sense that she's on the same level as the doctor so when she did go i was never like worried for her even though like the the tardis doors opened which i didn't realize that would happen even for a phone, it's like, yeah. yeah. I mean, a humanoid creature can turn that knob, but the TARDIS, is, the TARDIS is knob isn't meant to be touched, isn't meant to be open. You know what I mean? So when that happened, I was like, okay, maybe something's going to happen here. Maybe he's going to take control of the TARDIS. But then, thankfully, none of that happened, and he wasn't thrown in whatsoever. Yeah. And what about you, yeah. Mike? We didn't, we didn't really ask you about with regards to uh, Cushing. What are your thoughts on Cushing? No, I. I... I kind of said it all amongst the writing. Like I said, I, I think it's weird because I think he's he's not good as an adaptation of the William Hartnell Doctor, but he has elements to him that I prefer in other actors that have played the Doctor, if that made sense. So I actually really like the kind of sense that he can be a super genius, but also have that kind of childlike side. You know, there's no point in being grown up if you can't be childish sometimes, etc. Um, and so I, I do, I love that gag that they're all reading science books and he's reading you know the eagle probably a dan dare comic you know? yeah. <laughs> and, um, i i really like that and i do like the kind of youthful joy and exuberance that he has at discovering new things and it's a weird point to make but i do think he 
his like lie about the fluid link to keep them exploring. I, I forgive Cushing's doctor a lot more easily than I do Hartnell's where Hartnell, it seems like you recklessly put them in danger and it was stupid and you've done something dumb with Cushing. I was like, Oh, bless you. You wanted to look around and I can't blame you for your yeah. sense of wonder. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, looking back, obviously, you know, as I mentioned, he, he was asked to uh, be on the TV show, but declined. Would you, would either of you have been happy to see him? in the role of the the actual doctor on the tv series and if so would you be happy with say how he portrayed him in this or would you want a kind of different take on it for sure i mean i disagree with michael of course because what i said initially was like i thought he did capture a lot of uh, william Hartnell's mannerisms and stuff like that maybe he wasn't as stern at some points but he could have easily been written like that in the show especially if it's the same creative team, it, it, it's a different universe. Like if you stepped on a B, maybe he would have been the doctor, but it's like, I would not have mind this portrayal instead of William Hartnell's. And that might be controversial, but I love both. I love William Hartnell. I would, I wouldn't want him to be another doctor, but if this was yeah. what we got with William Hartnell, I would not have cared. Fair enough. Mike? They're very similar. Yeah. And I think, I think weirdly, um, I don't know if I would like him to be, the the first doctor the first one we got because i don't know if it necessarily would have worked and again i wouldn't replace william hartnell for for what he was able to do you know launching that role but weirdly for me he fits kind of perfectly between hartnell and troughton in in the way that they're characterized like he's a little softer and more childlike and more you know filled with wonder than hartnell was able to portray but not quite as over the top you know running around jumping and holding his bum when Cybermen are firing on him as, as Troughton got at times. Um, so, yeah, it, it, to me, I think he would be a great Doctor if you, if you slot him in there between it. But I will say, I think he also needs the younger Susan to have that kind of, you know, Penny and Inspector Gadget dynamic going on. Otherwise, he's just going to come across <laughs> as a bit of a buffoon. <laughs> I, do, I do like that uh, comparison, actually. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, I don't know. I've, I've just I, when when I look at, when I compare them side by side with Hartnell's Doctor and Cushing's Doctor, Cushing's Doctor always seems the more approachable. He seems like soon, yeah. If you if you approached either one of them with a question, I get the impression that Hartnell, especially when it started, would just like look you up and down and just tut and call you stupid. Whereas well, he, he does, yeah. I mean, it's like, oh, you don't understand it. <laughs> yes. Whereas and you I can't think, imagine Cushing being like, oh, oh you fool. <laughs> Cushing would try and answer your question. He'd probably forget what it was halfway through, but he'd have a go. <laughs> yeah, very absent-minded professor. And I, But like I said, just to emphasise, I do think it kind of, that is also a function of who he's got to act with because for whatever reason, it does feel like even though Barbara is now his granddaughter, unlike in the TV show, she might as well not be because he's giving all of his affection and all of his time is spent with Susan. Yeah. Like, she's clearly a favourite. <laughs> I mean, personally, no respect to Jenny Linden. I mean, she did okay with what she had, but I'm not trying to be, as I said, I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but she, for a lot of the film, she might as well not have been there. She was wallpaper. Well, I've said that from the start. Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a nothing role, and it's not her fault. It's just that, that that character wasn't written with anything to do. Like I said, the fact she was changed to, from being a random school teacher to being Doctor Who's granddaughter had no bearing on anything. Uh, it was it was just a, a plot device to introduce Ian because he couldn't really be the boyfriend that was coming to date an eight year old. So oh, you needed somebody older then. 
yeah. Barbara in the in the actual television serial, wasn't she like more involved with uh, Susan, like looking after her and stuff like that, looking out for her? So well, she was, she was that school teacher figure, wasn't she? So she were she were looking after what she. She never quite, even though she was ahead of a year, Susan, she never quite shook that parental, maternal kind of thing, I think, in the serial, where you just didn't get that because they were just sisters. Yeah. yeah. But even then, it's like the oldest sibling has got to be kind of protective. And then I get that she's this, she has a love interest, but, you know, blood goes thicker than that. And I got no sense that they were siblings other than like the opening bit. Where I was like more perplexed yeah. as to why she wasn't a teacher, but even so then, that, even then, with regards to the love interest, I didn't see any kind of chemistry as such between Roy Castle's character as Ian and Barbara. In no, this. like I said, it was just it was just because you needed an excuse to have him there. And how else would you introduce just this random bloke? I mean, you're going to say that the Doctor Who now suddenly has two granddaughters and a grandson. <laughs> you know, yeah. at a certain point, it gets silly. You know. Yeah. I mean, what did you think no. of Roy Castle's performance then? It's weird because I love Roy Castle as a person and as an entertainer. And like you, I grew up watching him on Record Breakers. And so I know him more as light entertainment TV show host kind of thing. So yeah. it's it's hard to kind of come up with a modern day comparison of like seeing somebody in this role. It would be the equivalent of, I don't know, Alan Carr or somebody turning up as the doctors. Peter Kay, I don't know. Uh, somebody that's known, but not somebody who hosts like game yeah. shows. I don't know, Michael McIntyre or weirdly John oh. Barrowman, like, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Somebody yeah. being a companion. Um, but so for me, I don't, I, I, like I said, this isn't a judgment on him as a person or as an actor. And he was obviously hired because he was that light entertainer, Sunday Night at the Palladium type guy. But he's just. He just grates on me in this film because he's playing the buffoon. And it's so like the that whole business at the start where they waste a solid five minutes on he's gotta sit on the chair and then run to the door and everything. And I'm like, this is awful. What are you <laughs> doing? What what's this for? Oh man. <laughs> no, but that like gave you like a natural segue into like showing uh, him the, the gizmo and they wasted no time in getting to the TARDIS. No, but I want about when they get to Scarrow and you've got the automatic doors, but you have to sit on the chair and the door opens and like he does this whole oh, that, look yeah. about slapstick, like the oh, sit on the chair, oh, run and try and catch it. Oops, oh, oh, run. And I was like, find something heavy, put it on the chair. It doesn't take a genius for crying out loud. <laughs> I think again, where it's it's that kind of childlike aspect. There's only one kind of child character in this, and obviously they can hold their own with any adult in the room, perhaps more. So you've got to have that kind of character that a child can identify with. And I think he plays that one quite well. It might not work in in terms of, you know, adult logic, but I think it gives something a, a kid, and especially me as a kid, because as, as you said, we, we did watch him on Record Breakers, someone to latch on to if that makes any yeah. sense. I think that's the thing. I think it will depend when you've seen the film as well, because you probably saw it as a child. And like yeah. I said, I was probably 15. So as a 15-year-old first watching this, I'm just thinking, oh, I'm just, I'm just picturing you as like <laughs> Kevin from Kevin and Perry now, mate. <laughs> I was I was never that even remotely cool, believe me. Yeah. <laughs> 
It's more like Will from the in between us, to be honest. <laughs> Here's the thing with Mike. I do agree with Mike in terms of I do think his performance can be a little bit grating, but that's mostly due to the writing. Like there's some brilliant moments where he's far more toned down than by the end when the slapstick comes back in when he walks into the TARDIS store. I thought that was hilarious. And then one minute later, you just have him prancing around the TARDIS for the materialization. I thought, okay, now you're going back into absurdity. So it's like a fine line that they never quite got. However, I think we criticize him more and his characterization more because of the affinity we have with the we know in the TV show, which is not mm. like Ian in the film. So we see him more negatively. Whereas from DK's perspective, I can understand far more from like a, a more neutral perspective. It is something mm. for the children. It is light relief, and I think I, I think this is the question you ask at the end. What's your favorite character? He is my favorite character just because if you actually think of everyone, who's the most memorable? Yes, you have Pierre Cushing playing the Doctor. Of course, that's going to be memorable. And you've you got Susan, who's like the intelligent one, but does she really have that great moment? Whereas I do think Ian is given those moments, and I think the performance merely complements that. And, you know, he executes what he was given really well. So... He's the most memorable. He's my favorite character. So props to him, even though I do agree with Michael. But I've, I think that's down to the writing, though. It's, it oh, never completely. I'm, not, I'm not criticizing him. He's doing what he was hired to do and what he's written to do, which is you're here to be the comic relief and to be the entertainer clown character that the kids will be able to laugh at and have a bit of fun. But I just don't know if my ideal version of this story needs that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and what about uh, going going a bit further afield, uh, burying him as Aladon? Gotta get a picture. I I have very little to say except that he looked like an alien that you would see from a porn parody. And... They are they are a, a pretty <laughs> bunch of people, aren't they? I've got a question because I just thought of something. You know the bit where Ian goes to the water and then he looks into the water and he sees something underneath the water. Yeah, mm-hmm. I swear that's a scene from the TV show, but he sees like eyes or something under the water. But then I'm thinking about what the film did. They it was like something's in that puddle over there, and then the other guy was like, "But look in this puddle, there's some pipes." And I thought, what did Ian just see? Is that ever explained? What did Ian? It was supposed to be. A, well, as DK said in the behind the scenes, it was meant to be a monster, but they couldn't afford it, or it just didn't look right. So I now the guy the gets killed. The camera cuts away to like, oh, look at these pipes, and then off screen the guy screams, and it's like, oh. That horrifying monster that you didn't see killed him. <laughs> so, oh well. I swear in the TV show, you actually do see like the eyes emerge from the water. Or at least I can't remember, but you you may be thinking of the slither from Dalek Invasion of Earth, though. Perhaps. No, 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 I'm not. I f- no. I don't remember, but again, it's been a while since I saw all of the the original serial, so maybe. Yeah. Finish finish the uh, Conan Bacon and Sylvester McCoy stuff, then go back. Finish. I'll be watching the colorization, won't I, soon? So. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. After this episode comes out, in fact. Yeah, immediately after this, Indeed. man. Yeah. Yep. We're recording this <laughs> Yep. So, yeah, do either of you have anything else to add with regards to the acting? Anybody that you think we've missed out? <sighs> no, I've said all my bits. That was literally, I've, I've touched on every one of my notes. Yeah. I know your favorite character is the guy that, you know, Cut himself free of the robe now, so <laughs> it's so silly. It's so emblematic of like, so why include that scene if you're just going to be like, oh, I'm all right after all. It it's unintentionally <laughs> comedic. I just went onto Discord messaging Mike, and I was like, I wasn't even paying attention for the minute after that. 
So yeah, that's uh, that's acting done. What are we on next? Oh, I'll move us to the direction then. Why not? Um, yeah, obviously the director of this was Gordon Fleming, who, uh, if you don't know, is the father or was the father. He's passed away, R.I.P. Uh, but he was the father of the actor Jason Fleming, who you will almost certainly have seen in something. He's often turning up in Guy Ritchie movies. He was in the abysmal League of Extraordinary Gentlemen movie. Uh, he was in X-Men First Class. I think he's been in a couple of other Matthew Vaughan stuff. And he has done interviews about this, uh, these films, because obviously he, he's aware he was around as a kid when his father was directing them. So he knows bits and pieces and you can find him talking about parts of the film. Uh, in terms of directing overall, we've mentioned already, I think the film makes great use of the fact that it is Technicolor. Um, and the scenes I was going to kind of touch on earlier, I think it's it's really, it's nice to, it adds to the alien feel whilst also looking kind of pretty and aesthetically nice when they arrive on Scarrow and everything has this green wash over it. And I was like, mm. ooh, that's a nice touch, you know? The, the, the TV show couldn't really, in black and white, you can't do that. I mean, they try something similar with the web planet and the whole Vaseline on the lens to make it look alien and it does not work at all. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> it's a, it was, um, a, it was I, an opinion you didn't have until last year, until you rewatched it. Before then, you thought, yeah, it was like, I know. <laughs> I mean, I like the serial, but that, that as an idea, like make it look alien by smear and Vaseline doesn't work. And yeah. I said, using I, ice I, to do that to give everything its own, its own color and its own place, uh, I yeah. really liked. And then the, as I said, when you get into the Dalek city, the pink tones and everything that they, they actually mm. stand out. They look kind of they look lived in rather than like sets. And like I said, a lot of them remind me of. Forbidden Planet and and movies of that era in America where they already had like full color movies and stuff going on. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree. I I love the mundane, like sickly green aesthetic of like the forest. The higher up the tree it went, the more dark yeah. green. Like, well, I don't even know if it was dark. It was just like a weird kind of lime. Well, it green. wasn't just that it was green. I I, I was curious why, because I was like, huh, it's, it's got a green wash, but is there something else? And when I watched the little documentary thing, apparently it was achieved because they filmed the scenes without the anamorphic widescreen lens on the camera. So right. it kind of is a little bit as if you're looking slightly out of focus, I guess. It gives it that weird otherworldly quality. Maybe that's the reason why I think the blue screen worked more effective in this, because perhaps the background was a little bit more blurred, so it it took your attention away from the obvious facts that in the TV show, it would have been a green screen. Whereas I got the sense that it was a blue screen in this just because of how it looked. It looked a little bit different. Yeah. And I thought for the most part, that was really effective. You obviously realize this is a set and not like a planet, of course. Yeah. They couldn't. In, in terms of that, of the background, I will say there's a gorgeous matte painting where it's the moon, like just in hanging in the sky behind them. And it looks, oh, it's, it's gorgeous. I love anything like that. As a as a Star Trek fan, of course I do, but I love like you know atmospheric things that are just a painting that they've stuck to the back of the studio. Yeah. And I do like as well how they made it a bit more three dimensional. With before the big reveal of the city, you could uh, kind of glimpse through the trees foliage, and you could see a little mm. bit of the sea. I thought that was mm. fantastic for just like setting the scene, like the surroundings of where you are. You, you like we yes. knew. That say was there somewhere, whereas in the TV show you wouldn't have been able to see it. Whereas in this, well, I can remember being very underwhelmed the first time I saw the TV episode because it's so clearly a model city. It's yeah. just like, oh, I mean, obviously it is, but with a film budget, it was a set and it was there. Um, but yeah, yeah. so I, th I think yeah, you're right. It was they make the most of that. Yeah, the set didn't exist just for the twist. You could actually see it beforehand, which I really appreciated. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
yeah, I will say as well, in terms of the director's style, I did think there was maybe one too many zoom in on somebody's face as they are in perceived peril and somebody shouts, be careful. But again, I think that was more the way filmmaking was in the 60s, especially for this kind of what would be regarded as a kind of family high adventure film. Um, yeah. I did, one other interesting <clears throat> moment that I noticed was when the Dalek that's commanding, the, the red one, is talking at, at a later point in the film. He's very specifically filmed as if the camera's on the floor looking up to presumably give him some menace. And I was like, that is really, it's genius, but it's very noticeable that you're not on the same level. You're looking upwards like that. And uh, I thought that was worth mentioning. Um, again, I like the fact that you you don't have to use cardboard cutouts like Power of the Daleks, and you can actually show an army of Daleks converging, and the camera makes the most of it with the wide shots and everything. And, like, why not? You've got the props. Uh, and, and the shots of the two armies clashing, I think they're able to do a lot more with. And, and that adds so much to the tension, especially with the whole, like, three seconds left, it's my lucky number business and everything. Um, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, DK, any thoughts from you about the direction? Because I think I've rambled through all of my... <laughs> there, there were a, a couple of sections. You mentioned it before with the... Uh, I don't know if it was you or Will, with regards to uh, Ian in the casing and uh, the Daleks are burning through the door. Mm. Towards me. I think the... It's it's directed and edited well, so it does actually ramp up the tension. And there's a, a scene, the scene later on where uh, they're in the lift, in the little elevator, yeah. and the Daleks firing. And I think the use of the angles uh, that Fleming yes. uses in that does is very effective. Yeah, because yeah, I think agreed. thinking about it now, there's like an aerial shot of like the smoke coming through the floor. Then it yeah. only like holds on that for like a second or two. Then you cut straight to. Um, uh, angle from the floor upwards where you can see like the smoke dispersing and the reactions of the characters which yeah, yeah. good point I think, I think those two th when, when it comes to the action set pieces I think Fleming does very well in this mm. agreed there was a moment where I thought the, direct, uh, the direction was bad even the bit where he cut, like, cut the rope and like, landed on that ledge it still looked good yeah Michael disagrees no, I agree. I'm, I'm not saying anything because I agree, so there's nothing else to add. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I know criticisms of the director. Yeah. No, I have no criticisms. Again, it's not the director's fault, but I did notice, which I found kind of amusing, that in the one scene where they kind of lasso the Dalek down the, uh, the lift shaft, um, the Dalek's dome light just pops off before it falls. Because <laughs> obviously, I mean, the, the Dalek props, bless them, they're not the most sturdy things. And I can imagine it was a nightmare to try and keep them together at the best of times. But because it's like, you know, being propelled backwards and it's about to do a huge drop, like it's just funny watching the dome light just pop off it. <laughs> I was like, that's, I'm so glad they kept that in because it was it, it was funnier than anything Roy Castle did for me in the movie. So do you guys have any other thoughts on direction or like we haven't touched on it, but like VFX, special effects or sets, things like that? Uh, I I don't really. I mean, I did think, and it's kind of combined the production design and the sets and stuff like that. And I, yeah, it, it is, again, it's something that we've said. It's very much of its time. It's very 60s. It's very much a wash with, you know, colour. It's something that they would, it, it is, as you say, a bit forbidden planet. It's not that what they would do these days. But I just yeah. think it's it still looks good for you know if you if you take into account that it's very much of its time, to me it still looks really good. 
and when you compare it, yeah, I know, you know, again, no disrespect to the original serial because you're working on a BBC budget, but uh, but this does look very nice. That I mean, there is there is things that I could. I could go, eh, you know, where they do that matte painting of the pipes and stuff like that. But by that point, I'm usually at half asleep anyway, so I don't really <laughs> notice. <laughs> yeah. I don't think anything's as bad as, like Will said, ironically, that last shot, where it's just obvious stock footage of a, an old Roman movie or whatever. That, is, that is pretty terrible. I mean, the angles don't match up at all. I know. Yeah. It's buried up to half point, half, the halfway point, at least. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, not great. But um, yeah, I mean, I, the only other thing I've said is that I really liked the idea, whoever had it, of the cameras in the Scarrow City just being Dalek eye stalks. And I was like, oh, I appreciate that little attention to detail. It's quite clever. And it adds a, a bit of menace to it. You know, you, you're feeling you know, like it's their eyes looking at you. Way. What was Which, that one? They, they turned slightly as the characters moved, but they didn't turn all the way. They had, they had Yeah, but it was still as if they were watching them, right? But it was like the transition afterwards away from that scene where you had like a cut and like one of the cameras turned directly into the lens of the camera, which I've, and then it kind of did like a, a circular like fade out. And I thought that was pretty good in terms of transition. Cool. Cause I can't yeah. recall this movie having many like transitions that classic doctor who typically had, like yeah. they had fancy transitions at points. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's no like George Lucas star wipes or anything because it's not that kind of filming, uh, isn't that kind of director? But yeah, exactly. It 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 you know it helps add it a bit more of a layer of seriousness not having that. Uh, so last thing then before we go to music and sound, which we haven't touched on, um, what do you guys think of this particular interior for TARDIS? Not good, is it? <laughs> you don't even have like a main console really. It's just like nope. Is all the different components to fly the TARDIS are in separate in like different parts of the console room, which I thought was naff. It's like just like yeah. another laboratory of his, but well, it is a it, wait, no, in first, like there's a labora, uh, laboratory at their home, you know, when like yeah. uh, the, the fluid link is uh, broken, as I said, ah, oh, it's in my laboratory, which is at home, because I thought maybe like the TARDIS was. The laboratory, but they were they had the TARDIS, so that wouldn't be a thing. It's meant to look like an extension <laughs> office lab, um, yeah. which, as a space time machine, does not work. Where's the Bunsen burner? Yeah, to me, it just looked like my dad's shed. Like it was just all clutter and and nonsense. And even when, like you said, you were supposed to be looking at it as potential components. I mean. The daughter starts flying because Ian knocks a ladder, which is inexplicably in there for no reason. And when they get to where the fluid link is, it's so obviously just a, a bit of, you know, a couple of two by fours with some little vials just duct taped to it or something. It, it doesn't look convincing at all. And I was like, oh, they haven't tried with this, bless them. So, yes, but it's definitely my least favorite TARDIS interior. Um, what about you, DK? How do you feel? Well, I mean, we had this discussion the other day. I, I've got. A kind of affection for it. It's it's the as you say, it's the the worst TARDIS interior ever. But I still kind of grew up on it in those formative years, and it reminded me of my spare room. So it was excellent for pretending the spare room was a TARDIS. <laughs> I would imagine a lot of people probably did imagine that their dad's shed was like it, because like I said the way that it was cluttered and it, just a couple of deck chairs and a ladder or whatever. So yeah, maybe that's the aesthetic that they were going for. Probably. 
if you think about it, yeah, maybe. But uh, to me, it just doesn't really work. As I say, as a space-time machine, it just feels a bit like, huh. But, like I say, if it's appealing to kids and the idea was just, who kids can copy it by walking down the garden, maybe that's that was the point. So, anyway, um, so DK, do you have any, do you want to lead us in a talk about the sort of, the music and the sound? Because I don't have much to say, but and you might touch on some of it anyway. <laughs> I don't really, I mean, you know, I've not really got anything on that, actually. Fair enough. No well, I, I will quickly note that the electronic music is by the, the famous Barry Gray, who you will know, he was uh, Jerry Anderson's regular contributor. So he made like the famous theme from Thunderbirds, for example, and things like that. And uh, it's it's a very swigging 60s, especially the main theme to this one, isn't it? Really? Yeah. Uh, well, I'll jump in then and say, uh, we're going to go around. Will, you've already basically told us this, so you may as well start us off if it's anything you haven't said. But Will, who is your favourite character? Who could it be? <laughs> uh, I think it was Barbara. <laughs> wow. Understandable. She makes, she makes an impact. Yeah, She did. She did. <laughs> I'm not changing my answer. We Has know it was really it. Ian. It was. You already said it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can't fool us with your, your trickery. So, yeah. <laughs> DK, who was your favourite character then? Uh, it's another one for Ian. Uh, oh, even okay. years before I saw the original, I was a fan of this version. I grew up watching Roy Castle in Record Breakers. So, there was someone there, no matter how goofy, that I could latch on to. I think he's got decent comic timing. I mean, Roy Castle were always good. And it comes through in this. Yeah, he's a bit of an idiot, but he's out of his element. And but God help me, I love him. Fair enough. Uh, I I'm gonna have to be the only one to be different then, because I said my favourite character was actually Susan, uh, because she gets to be more serious than Doctor Who or Ian, but she also actually gets to do something, unlike Barbara. So <laughs> I was like, I could imagine if I'd watched this at a younger age, she probably would be the character I would have identified most with. Um, She's the hero of the story for me. So, uh, Will, back to you. What was your favourite uh, moment or scene in the in the film? Uh, you're going to hate me because it is a one-liner. It's a one-worder, actually. It's when uh, Barbara says, hey, Dalek. And the Dalek goes, yes. And then she absolutely splats with some food. That's my favourite line. <laughs> oh, yeah. Just, yes. So that's your favourite moment and line, is that? <laughs> that is my favourite uh, moment and line, yes. Okay, okay. Uh, I was well, like, we'll, we'll just ask for your one word as my favorite line. No, that's fine. I understand. Uh, so, DK, what about you? What's your favorite moment? First of all, we'll go around yeah. in uh, in order. Favorite moment: uh, the climax, Dalek control room. Yeah, it looks dated, but back when I was a kid, to see the absolute chaos on screen and seeing them in color, phenomenal. Uh, remastered mm -hmm. version, even more so. I can only imagine, as you said earlier, how good this would look on a cinema screen. So, yeah, mm. going for that. Can definitely see why you went with that. Um, I said my favorite moment was the uh, as, I've, as I've kind of alluded to was the elevator escape scene because even now having seen this a lot of times, I still think that it is a, a masterclass in how you do tension and how you make it seem threatening, and it's just a really cool adventurous scene to watch as well. So I, I, I went with that. If I had to pick a scene, there are others. I mean, I like the like I said the jail escape moment that leads up to that, and I like you. I do love the. Like I said, when the Daleks all come pouring in and you're like, oh, wow, there's actually more than three Daleks on screen. Yeah. It's pretty good. So, yeah. Okay. Um, and Will, so your favourite line, which we'll drop in now, was? Yes. 
<laughs> what was your favourite line in the film? I've got two, and I'm not sure which to go with, if I'm being honest. Ah, just uh, pick both. Will only picked one word. Come on, do something. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, the first one is, the last war destroyed almost everything on this planet. Left it like this. We do not want another. Which I think mm. is always a, a good thing to uh, to say. And then I just like Susan's description of the TARDIS. An electroconnected theory, space expands to accommodate the time necessary to incorporate its dimensions. Complete bollocks, but it just gets it. Gets just, you that it's nonsense. <laughs> oh, anyway. Um, yeah, my favourite line was, because I like the kind of impact and the potential that it uh, kind of hints at, is simply, uh, if they called us monsters, what must they be like? Because <laughs> I'm a sucker for that kind of thing. So, yeah. Um, so, DK, you have the audience response for this one. So over to you. What did the audience think of Doctor Who and the Daleks? Yeah, well, we had quite a few on this one. Uh, so I'll, I'll go through where they're from. Uh, over on uh, Shitter, uh, Kenneth M. Sweeney. Nice. Here's something weird about this movie. I remember Weetabix doing a promotion on this with cardboard cutouts you could play with in the <laughs> 1980s. I can't remember that, but I'm going to be headed to eBay. Uh, <laughs> says it's a full Dalek banger. So, yeah, I'm, I'm guessing he likes it in that vernacular. Uh, on your Threads account, uh, Nerdy Ham says four out of five stars. It's better than the serial it's based on. Susan is written so much more effectively than in the main show, and the Daleks and set pieces are amazing. Now, uh, over on the classic Whovian group, uh, Boris Stoinov says five stars on Daleks Rule Supreme. Wow. Uh, Wilson, He's on Facebook, by the way, yeah? Yeah, so, Nova yeah. Wilson, love that name, says, love the colour schemes for the Daleks in the first movie. What lets the first film down are the slow, monotone voices the Daleks have. And the ridiculously camp thals. They all look like drag queens. Uh, Beth Ravenwood says, I love the films, the best Daleks ever. Max Drebin says, four stars. Uh, again, on Facebook, sticking with Facebook, this time the nerdy up north community. John Wright says, it was actually the first Who I'd ever seen. I instantly fell in love with it and remember watching this and uh, Doctor Who Invasion 2150 AD with Cribbins. Glenn Savile says, I love this movie. Dalek 2-0 says Roy Castle is the best companion. So, yeah, fair enough. Uh, Dalek Mania fans on Facebook again says, yeah, it's cool. They're showing it on the BBC4 on the 23rd, so I will definitely be watching it. Uh, I think he was confused about that, and I think he's actually thinking of the uh, oh, polarised version of the serial. <laughs> yeah. oh, fair enough. Uh, again, from Dalek's Rule Supreme, James Curran says, retro vision or hindsight is a wonderful thing, but to a kid in the 1960s, in brackets, me, at 10 years old, uh, who had only until then ever seen a Dalek in black and white. This movie was brilliant. As for the Thals looking like drag queens, most kids back then wouldn't have understood or cared less. Uh, the Doctor Who uh, 1963 to 2023 group on Facebook, uh, Tim Moon, says it's enjoyable in many ways, though hard to get over its lack of links to the TV version. Cushing is a great doctor, but that TARDIS interior is awful. I think we're going to have to disagree there, Tim. Uh, yeah, again, on your threads, uh, Jen Gregory says, finally saw both on the big screen last year. They're both fantastic films, uh, in my humble opinion. Watched them so much as a kid. Again, Nerdy Up North Community says, I saw both of the Cushing movies in the 70s as a preteen and thought they were both great romps. 
As an adult, they still have their charm despite the cheap effects and oft comedic acting. A solid four, they did what they intended to do. Sticking with Facebook. Me and Nerdy Up North account, was it, sorry? Yeah, uh, that was the, yeah, Nerdy Up North. Uh, On the Doctor Who BBC group, uh, Mark Van Helsing says, in my opinion, Peter Cushing would have made a brilliant first Doctor if he ever was given the role. And he also said that's an awesome movie poster for the Daleks. And we had one on the Mm -hmm. silver screen uh, group, which was Glenn Brooks. He says, a part of my childhood, I loved them both. And that's it for audience feedback this time. Awesome. So, yeah, I mean, for the first time in a while, I think universal love. I don't think anybody really had anything super critical to say about that. So, uh, interesting. And, yeah, it's always nice to see that uh, people are still getting joy out of it. But we have to give our, uh, you know, film critic analysis style conclusions and so forth. <laughs> so, Will, as the guest, we're going to come to you first oh, for your no. one-word review. <laughs> so, yes. What's your conclusion and your score? Solid 2.0. Will I get flamed for that? I literally don't have... You're going to give it... I don't have a conclusion written down. Otherwise, I I would like said my summary earlier in terms of, like, yes, there are moments, like what you said, Michael, there are moments where it's, like, really impressive uh, use of the budget and stuff like that. The skyline's fantastic. There's moments where the ground um, opens up, and I think, yes, this is something to latch onto. This is, like, piquing my interest. Whereas, like I said before, in my summary halfway through, um... The source material is not good, and it is literally a plain copy of the source material with the odd exception, and of course, bare pacing. So, I would like Michael choose to watch this over the original serial, which suggests that it's better, but it's not, in my opinion. It's just a case of it's shorter, so naturally, you're gonna watch the shorter version of something of the same quality, and it's in color, so I guess it makes it a bit easier. There's pros and cons to it. For example, the Daleks aren't as menacing, in my opinion, in this as partly due to the uh, just the blowy jet wash you like spray onto a car coming out of a Dalek laser. Uh, whereas the like the sets and stuff are undeniably ish superior to the television show. Uh, so it's a really mixed bag. I did enjoy it. It's a lot of fun. I saw one Lairbox review said it's awful. But I love it, and that's how I uh, kind of conclude as well. It's a 2.5 out of 5 for me, middle of the road, and it's got the same rating as the original serial, even though it doesn't have one and a half serials of them just jumping over the cavern, like crevice or whatever the hell you call it. So, yeah, yeah. mixed bag. <laughs> okay, um, so DK, then over to you for your uh, opinion and your yeah. score of 5. <laughs> This, it it brings back so many memories in sitting in front of the TV as a kid and watching this repeatedly. Even when it wasn't on TV, it was one of those used to rent from the video store every so often. It was practically in a loop. Looking at it with today's eyes, though, beautiful as it is, it doesn't quite hold up. It's very much of its time, so, with you know, obviously with all that entails. And it has its fair share of pacing issues with a lull during Act 2 that, if not careful, can trigger narcolepsy. I'll be honest, <laughs> I'm one of those that prefers the sequel. In my opinion, it's staged much better and has a lot more action. Plus, as much as I love Roy Castle, Bernard Cribbins, dude. Having said that, I still have a great fondness for this one. It's bright, it's colourful, it shows what you can do with a concept when you have a budget. I mean, yeah, now it looks dated, but back in the day... I do like Cushing's interpretation of the character. 
The supporting cast, Roberta Tovey especially, is decent enough, and it's just a romp. Well, you know, as much of a romp as a nuclear wasteland can be. It's no longer something I can watch on a loop, so it doesn't hold up as well as it could have, but I still have those fond memories of it. Rose-tinted spectacles and all. And I'm now tempted to look up those further adventure books, so that's something. Uh, regardless, Cushing made a good doctor, and it's just a shame we never got much more, much more out of him to see him grow. I'm going to give it three and a half out of five. Okay, and you will be looking for those Weetabix cards. <laughs> those Weetabix cards and the, those continuing adventures books. I'm all up for that. Awesome. That's fair enough. So, uh, my conclusion then, I just said, I hadn't quite remembered just how slavishly this copies the plot of the TV serial, uh, although the fact that it condenses seven 25-minute episodes into under 90 minutes telling the exact same story really shows how overblown and plodding that initial serial is. As a result, I'd say I probably find this movie a little bit more enjoyable, certainly a much easier rewatch. As well as being breezier, there is some cheeky, quirky comedy courtesy of Roy Castle that does up the sense of fun, if you like that kind of thing. On the negative side, the characters are understandably barely developed, especially when compared to the regulars of a TV show. I'll also never understand the need for seemingly perfunctory changes like the human Doctor Who and his two granddaughters. Uh, but worst of all are the voices of the Daleks, who seem to think that you must pronounce every syllable slowly and robotically. Yeah, <laughs> I don't love that. We know the reasons why, but it's still great at times. Uh, there's also random flashing lights on Daleks, which we've mentioned, who aren't talking. And I personally still much prefer the TV show Dalek designs, I would say, overall. Uh, sorry not to disagree, DK. Um there's a nice sort of colourful 50s and 60s sci-fi movie feel, though, and very definite charm. As a final thought, I'm not sure if the film, enjoyable as it is, justifies existing when it's such a close copy of something else. But having said that, it does improve on it in some places. It's fun, but I wouldn't call it essential viewing. And I also gave it 3.5 out of 5, DK. So adding those scores together... <laughs> we'll add them together, we divide it by three which gives Doctor Who and the Daleks a final score of 3.16 out of five so, Pretty fast, yeah, yeah, I mean not that bad I mean, it's one of the lower scores we, we've had for a, a while, I think, but certainly not bad, and as I said, I think you, you can get the impression there, worth a look don't go out of your way, maybe <laughs> to, to go and see it so. I think even but, fans of it you know, can admit that it's not the best movie out there, as Will said. But yeah, I think it's more a nostalgia trip than anything else. But yeah. It's, it's, yeah. you know, it's still a decent way to pass an hour and a half on an afternoon. And it's made me want to think it's also. Yeah. Well, that's something, I guess. But yeah, I think it's also, like I said, because it is a film that's almost sixty years old now. The generation that grew up with much faster-paced films that can do a lot more. This is never going to be like, oh, wow, look what the amazing things we can do, because we can do better things with a cheap kids' TV show half of the time. Than... But, yeah. again, it's hard to, to judge out of context. So I like it. I think it's really good, and I would I would chuck it on, like I said, any time and, uh, and enjoy watching it, like we used to on the old uh, bank holidays and things. So, uh, yeah, I think that's, that's going to do it for us here. So 
As I say, if you're uh, listening to us live or watching us on YouTube, you'll be able to flick over pretty much now to BBC4 and catch the colourised cut-down version of the original Daleks serial to see how it compares. And do still keep enjoying the 60th anniversary celebrations of Doctor Who, a show we are all very fond of. Uh, you can wait until Saturday to see the first of the 60th anniversary specials uh, where... Doctor Who will encounter Beep the Meep, or the Doctor, I should say. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, if you have any comments, thoughts, or feelings, or you would be interested in being a guest on the show, feel free to drop us a line at any of our socials, which you can find in the description, or leave a comment on this video. <laughs> uh, yeah, and that's just about it. You can find us most, well, you can find me on most social medias, if you can find DK on there. Congratulations. It's very much a Where's Wally situation. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But yeah, so DK, did you have anything you wanted to shout out where people could find you, incidentally? <laughs> nah. Lair <No>. box. <laughs> what was that, Will? Lair box. It's in the description. Yeah, you'll find mine and DK's letter box, and I'll put any links that Will uh, wants to pass on. But Will, did you want to shout anything out quickly where people can find you? Yeah, so what you can do now is you can either watch the colorization of the Daleks, or you could go to the Will Templar YouTube channel and do me a favor and just watch all my content. That'd be fantastic if you did. And also, <laughs> if my uh, fucking film opinions, uh, box link will probably be in the description. And that's my question. oh yeah, if you if you if you pass it on for sure, yeah. What do you mean if I pass it on? You follow me, you could get it. That's true. I probably could, but I'm lazy. <laughs> no, I will. I'll do it. Thanks for having me, though. Uh, it's amazing how, like, this is my first appearance in a long, long time since I was going to be bloody hosting and editing this podcast this year. So I do apologize for how things turned out, but glad to be here. Yeah. Glad to be here. This and Terminator have been so much fun. Awesome. Well, hopefully we'll have you on again next year, but we've got something planned anyway, at least. So, yeah, yeah that's great. So uh, the next thing that we are going to be doing, myself and DK, will be a Star Trek podcast. So you can catch that over on our sister channel. Uh, we're going to be doing a final Klingon-based review for the episode Blood Oath from Deep Space Nine. Or you can wait... Well, it's, we haven't done it for a while. We kind of finished the series, and this is like an epilogue okay. uh, just to kind of finish things off, just because I didn't have an episode scheduled for December. So, know. You know, um, so that'll be that. And then if you stick around a couple of weeks, we will be back on this channel with a review. Myself, DK, and Adrienne is back. We're going to be reviewing the Netflix movie Klaus, which I haven't seen. So that'll be interesting for me because... Adrienne was badgering me basically all year, and that was essentially the winner of the poll that we did when mm. we hit uh, 200 subscribers, which now feels like a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, that was the, uh, along with Adrienne, that got the most support for being the film that we had to add to the schedule to review. So we're going to be doing that. And uh, in the two weeks following, immediately following that, you can catch us reviewing Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory with Sandy. And then Adrienne and Sandy will both join us to review the movie Scrooged and for our festive Christmas special. So stay tuned for all that. And yeah, in the meantime, enjoy the Doctor Who celebrations. Let's hope that the 60th anniversary all goes well and we enjoy oh. them. And, <laughs> and uh, yeah, we'll see you here with Klaus in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, remember, in the epic words of Arnie, we'll be back. <laughs> I'll be back. You have been listening to the Silver Screen Podcast, hosted by Michael Wilson and DK. Created, produced, and edited by Michael Wilson. Behind the scenes sections and additional material produced by DK. 
Music by Timeless Journey. More information can be found at soundcloud.com forward slash timeless journey. Follow the podcast on Instagram at Silver Screen Podcast or look for the Silver Screen Podcast under Facebook groups. Links to all our social media accounts and more are in this episode's description. This podcast is available on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for Silver Screen, Hit or Miss Star Trek. This has been a Mike's Podcast Production, copyright 2022. Thank you for listening.